Well, again, my name is Travis. Paul, are we good? Good enough. Well, I will just try and shout this morning. If you all can't hear the microphone, I'm sorry. It'll just be a little bit louder. Uh, So we'll just go together. We have been going through the book of Philippians in a series that we are calling Working Together for the Gospel. The book covers a lot of things, but the heart of the book, what Paul is really getting at for the community in Philippi, is that they must work together for the advance of the gospel in the world. That the gospel needs us to be together as a people. It's not the Christian life as individuals in our own little bubbles, just me and Jesus. It's us together with God as a people for the good of the world, that all things might be renewed. This morning, we have the delight of focusing on a text that I'm simply titling Grumbling. It's going to be uh, a little bit challenging, I hope. I hope it renews us and changes us. But this morning, like I said, there is far too much here for me to actually cover all the ground of the text. So we're just going to focus primarily on verses 13 through 16. And I will try to reference some of these things as we go along, but we'll do the best that we can. So I would invite you to pray with me now for this time together. God, we need you. We believe in you. We pray that you would be present for those who do not know you. Pray that you would work in their hearts, that you would call them, that you would invite them to know you for the first time, God, that you would do something dramatic in the hearts of those who have known you for so long and who feel their hearts have grown hard and stale and stubborn. God, would you soften us to your word? Would you soften us to one another? Would you change our hearts towards our children and our spouses, towards our friends and family? Would you make us those who are joyful people, who are people of gratitude, a people who shine like lights in the universe? Be with us in this time. In your son's name we pray. Amen. If it's all right with you all, I'm just going to take this off and shout. Does that sound good? All right. Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you all. Uh, I am particularly tired this morning, so I hope that this is in some way, shape, or form clear. Uh, we had twins recently. I should say my wife had twins recently. I was a witness to this great and momentous event. Paul? Let me try this. Okay. Well, we will uh, hopefully have some clarity here this morning. I'm trying to focus our time in the text by looking at it through the lens of four questions. What is grumbling? Why do we do it? Why do we need to change? And how do we change? So just those four perspectives. What does it actually mean to grumble? Why do we do it in the first place? Why do we actually need to change? Why is it a problem for us? And how do we actually go about changing? So let's just begin at the beginning here by noting first that grumbling is actually an important problem. This comes in a section where Paul already said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And the things that follow on from that necessarily should be taken seriously. Paul is speaking seriously and trying to communicate to the Philippians that this is actually a significant thing, that all these things in this passage from here on after 
uh, verse 12, need our attention. So we shouldn't just gloss over it and think, crumbling, got it, blah, 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 moving along. It's actually significant. And more than that, even if we've been Christians for a long time, we can't dismiss it. As you may remember from previous weeks, the community in Philippi was a faithful community. These people had partnered with Paul for a long, long time. These weren't uh, the Corinthians that Paul was writing to saying, y'all are way, way off course. You need to get back online. These are the down the middle Christians that are faithful and working along. If that's you this morning, you need to hear this and receive it. There is actually a warning here for you that is meant to bring you back into faithfulness and to keep you from unfaithfulness. But grumbling may not be what we think it is. Grumbling is not just being grumpy. Uh, The words that Paul uses here are actually strange words. They're not strange words, but they're just unusual words. They're not used very often in the New Testament. And so that might clue us into the fact that maybe he is using them in a special way. Maybe they reference something in an unusual way. And these words are actually the exact same words that are used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to talk about an event in the Exodus. In Exodus chapter 17, God had brought his people out of Egypt. They were in the desert, and he had brought them to a place where there was no water. This is a predicament. I'm just going to read briefly from Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 3 and 7, to sort of set this up for you, to give you a picture of what grumbling is through the lens of Exodus 17, which it seems like Paul's referencing here. It says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us? And our children and our livestock with thirst? And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So those words there, quarreled, corresponds to disputing and grumbling, corresponds to grumbling. The people there were grumbling and disputing with Moses and with the Lord. So what does that actually mean? Well, the underlying Hebrew word that these Greek words are referencing there is rayiv, and it's a word that can mean to conduct a lawsuit. And in the particular opinion of several commentators, this word has sort of a quasi-legal tone to it. These people weren't just complaining and saying, God, it's so hot, where is the water? They were actually getting close to the point of putting God on trial. That is what grumbling and quarreling and disputing is in the picture from Scripture is getting to the point where we want to put God on trial, where we're challenging him, where we're testing him, and not just saying, this is rough, but I've had it with you. We're going to have to have a disagreement in court. This is the kind of level of irritation that Israel has with God here. It's not just casual. It has a legal overtone to it. This is challenging God. This is putting him to the test. And maybe it may not seem like challenging God is really what grumbling is about. It may seem like we're actually just being honest and reacting to a situation that's difficult. Well, it's true that grumbling is in response to something that we would say is not the way it's supposed to be. Israel is rightly responding to a lack of water. They're not just saying, there's no water. Hooray! We don't have anything to drink. No, they're appropriately responding to, or I should say they're responding to an appropriate situation for crying out, but they're not responding in an appropriate way. They're saying, God, why did you actually bring us here? 
Are you with us or not? Is this, are you just trying to kill us? Like, what, is this a joke? Where is the water? You have to hear the force of what is going on in this text to start to understand what it is to actually grumble against God and for us to understand the ways that we actually do it ourselves. Maybe for you this morning, you're saying to God, why have you brought me to this job, to this boss that doesn't get it? Why have you brought me to this community, to this neighborhood with these people that don't get it? Why have you brought me to this family with these parents that don't get it? This brother and sister that don't get it, with this spouse that does not get it. God, why have you brought me here? That's the heart of grumbling. It is an irritation with God over where you are to the point where you are just, you are so close to completely having had it with the situation. But is this the right response? Is this what God wants of us from situations of difficulty? Well, I think we can look at the Psalms to actually get a picture of what does it look like to respond to situations of adversity in a healthy, faithful way, in a way that is not actually grumbling. So I want us to just look sort of briefly at a couple of Psalms just to get an idea of what it's like to respond to situations that are not fun, situations that are difficult, frustrating, even life-threatening in a lot of ways. That's the picture that the Psalms paint for us over and over again. In Psalm 40, Verses 12 through 17, the psalmist says, For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch my life away. I think the contrast we can see here between the psalmist and Israel is the psalmist is asking. He's saying, God, please deliver Israel is saying, where is the water? Bring it out. There's a difference in tone there. There is entitlement versus humility. In Psalm 42, 1 through 5, we can see the psalmist highlighting what it is to cry out in belief for help from God. It says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is crying out and saying this situation is awful. This is not just saying, well, everything is terrible, but I'm just praising the Lord. No big deal. This is not a sort of Seinfeld serenity now moment where you just say a phrase and pretend like there is no problem and you're just going to get through it. This is real, honest engagement saying, God, this is, this is not what I wanted. Help me. The difference between the Psalms and grumbling here is an honest faith that is asking versus an entitled faith that is demanding and that is bitter with doubt. And then finally, just to return back to Psalm 40 for picking up, I think, the third piece of what grumbling is, is in verses 1 through 3, the psalmist says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. In the Psalms, we see an appropriate response to adversity as patience. And the response of grumbling is impatience. So in contrast, when we're challenging God, when we're responding to adversity and grumbling, we are feeling entitled 
instead of humbled before the God who made all things. We're feeling bitter and doubtful instead of just being honest and crying out in faith that God would actually meet us. And we're being impatient instead of patient. We're demanding that God do things on our timeline, in our way, when we want it, when we say. Parents, I think we know something about that from our children. Amen, right? There is a demand that must be met at this time. Is grumbling acting like a child before God in an inappropriate way, in an unhealthy way, in an unfaithful way? Grumbling is challenging God in these ways. But why do we respond this way? Why is this even an inclination of our heart? Well, I think we've already mentioned this previously, but the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Things are actually broken here. This is not a perfect place. There are things that we should respond to with frustration, with disappointment. Adversity is difficult for anybody. It's challenging, and it's going to draw a response to that challenge if we engage with it honestly. There's a way to just wall ourselves off But if we are open-hearted to the world and the circumstances God has put us in, it's going to challenge us to respond. The question is, how do we respond? When we respond with grumbling, the problem is not just that there are things broken with the world. The problem is that there are things broken in us. Our circumstances aren't deterministic. It's not like this thing happens and automatically everyone responds exactly the same way. We see this at the cross. Jesus was crucified along with other people. But while someone was crying out against God and cursing Jesus, Jesus was praying the Psalms. It is not a guarantee that a circumstance leads to a particular reaction. We grumble because we are actually captivated by something else. We are more enamored with, more in love with, more in hope for something that is not God. Whatever that something else is this morning for you, It's too little. Whatever your hope is, that your children would finally go to sleep, that's too little. That your children would finally perfectly obey you, that is too little. That your spouse would finally do everything exactly the way you want it to be done, that is too little. That you would finally find the perfect spouse, that is too little. You are settling for too little when we make these things our ultimate hope. Dream as much as you want. Have the biggest empire, have the most money, have the best things, the best relationships. In the view of the gospel, if those things are your hope and those things alone, you have settled for too little. God wants more for you than just those things. They're not bad things in and of themselves. But when you put them here and you put God below them, you have settled for too little. Stop settling. We have got to say that to ourselves because these things push against us. They have us. Am I right? When was the last time that you had a true, sincere desire that you just told to go away and it politely obeyed? The things that drive our hearts do not respond with kindness and with respect. They are going to continue to draw and draw and draw. And we have to remember that they are not enough. Whatever they are promising you, it is not enough. Whatever it is, it's not enough. You need more. God has more for you in the gospel than the promises of this world, of this time, of this place. We grumble because we have settled for too little. And because we have settled for these things, we see anything that keeps us from these things, from what we're captivated by, from what we love, as getting in the way of our great hope. We see them as stopping us. They are obstacles 
But what does the posture of the Psalms do? What does the posture of a heart in faith and hope in God do? It lets us see adversity as an opportunity. It lets us see our sleeplessness when our children will not go to bed at 2 a.m. as an opportunity. It lets us see the boss that continually berates us and ignores us and says all kinds of bad things about us in our views as an opportunity. A heart of faith lets us see these things as an opportunity because we are most captivated by God and they cannot take that away from you. What are you afraid of losing this morning? If you are a Christian, you cannot be afraid of losing God because he has promised that he will not lose you. You cannot lose him. Don't settle for too little this morning and consequently grumble against the people that cause you to be taken away from the thing that you've settled for. Ask for more. Expect more. Go to God and expect that he would be more than what you can settle for here. Let's believe that God is for us and come what may. It can only work for our good, as the Apostle Paul said in Romans 8.28, because we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. But this is still difficult. I'm not saying this is particularly easy. We're going to get to how we actually go about changing in a minute. But I want to address, and I think it's important to address, the text addresses why do we actually have to change? Why is it a big deal that we grumble? Yes, settling for less is bad. But why is it actually a big deal? Why is it bad enough that Paul needs to write about it and say, don't do this? This is a serious problem. Well, because something is seriously wrong with our relationship with God when we grumble. I think the picture of a marriage might help us understand this a little more. It's a picture that God uses throughout Scripture of his relationship with his people. In Isaiah 54, 5, God says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. The book of Hosea in the Old Testament is an extended picture of how God is a husband to his people. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 5, that the relationship between a husband and a wife is like that between God and his people. So what is wrong in our marriage relationship with God when we are grumbling? Well, if we go back to Exodus 17, what's the state of a marriage like in Exodus 17 with the people and God, with the bride and the groom? What is that relationship like with this accusing pseudo-legal language that we saw at the beginning where they're getting ready to go to court. But you have a relationship on the verge of divorce. When is a relationship, when is a marriage truly dead? When it's in court. And you have a people in the desert standing on the doorstep of the courthouse and knocking, waiting to get in. When we are grumbling, we are putting ourselves on the verge of walking away from our relationship with God. It doesn't feel like that. But that is why it's so important that Paul is asking us to pay attention to it. Pay attention this morning. What are you grumbling about? You're on the verge of making that thing your God and walking away from God in order to have it. But grumbling isn't really the problem. Grumbling is actually the indicator of a bigger problem in our own lives. If we're keeping with this picture, this metaphor of our relationship with God as a marriage, the real problem is unfaithfulness. Along with trust, loyalty and faithfulness is the bedrock of any intimate relationship like a marriage. Christian counselor Tim Lane says loyalty and faithfulness goes beyond trust 
and is really about cherishing your partner and celebrating what you have and nurturing gratitude. Loyalty draws you to minimize their negative and maximize their positive qualities. If you don't do these things, even if you establish trust and have attraction, you won't go the distance. Why? Because without loyalty, people tend to think they can do better and nurture resentment over what's missing, which begins a cascade toward disloyalty, unfaithfulness, and betrayal. I don't know about you, but nurturing resentment sounds a lot like grumbling to me. It keeps saying, what's missing here? It keeps saying, where is the water? Bring it out. It's about time. Lane goes on to say, as long as you are thinking in a relationship, maybe I can do better, you're not really in that relationship. As long as you are thinking, maybe I can do better, you are not in that relationship. Spouses, you need to hear that this morning. As long as you are thinking, maybe I can do better, you're one foot in and one foot out. Christians, the same applies to us. As long as you are thinking, maybe I can do better with something else. As long as you have that Exodus 17 mentality that Israel had, where they were thinking, maybe we could have done better in Egypt, you are one foot in and one foot out. Maybe you're saying this morning, I can do better with control. I could do a lot better if everyone would just do everything my way. I don't need God. I just need everyone to listen to me. Maybe that's pleasure for you. Maybe that's saying, I need everything I want, when I want it, the way I want it, exactly as I want it. I can do better with that. Maybe it's a relationship for you this morning. Maybe you're saying, this guy, this girl, not a Christian, not a big deal. I can do better with them than I can being patient and waiting for God to deliver for me than having the attitude and the heart of the Psalms that cries out and waits for God. Maybe it's an addiction for you this morning. Maybe you're saying, I can do better with just giving in to this thing. I don't need to confess. I don't need to come to God. I can do better with this. Whatever it is for you this morning, and you do need to figure out what it is because it is there. We are not perfect people. We all have things that we want that are not God, and we've put them above God. Whatever you are saying, maybe I can do better. That is the thing that you are making your God. That is the thing that will cause you to grumble. That is what is below your grumbling. When we think we can do better, we grumble. But again, all these things that we think we can do better with, they're not enough. Get as much of it as you can. Go all the way down the line. Take as much as you can. It is not enough. Start to let go this morning. It's not enough. If you've got it, it's not enough. It's just not. You can let it go. It's okay. You will be better without having that thing be your ultimate value. Really, this is why we have to change. Because our relationship with God is on the verge of divorce. When we make these other things our God. When we make them our value. Sound relationships, even with God, involve not just trust, but faithfulness, loyalty, commitment. I'm with you, come what may. But the beauty of the gospel is that it's not us just saying this to God and him like, mm-hmm, okay, we'll see, we'll see. No, God says this to us first. We see this in Christ most of all, in the desert, in his temptation. He says, I'm with you, come what may, tempted as I may be, I am going to be for this people. 
in lowliness and poverty. Maybe you are dealing with some financial difficulty this morning. Maybe you know what it is to look at your bank account and not be sure what will happen next week. Christ said, foxes have holes, but I have no place to lay my head. You have one who has come to say, I am with you. His name means God with us. He is with you no matter what. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he was with you no matter what. He said, not my will, but yours, God. If there's any other way, let's do it. But if not, I'm with these people. I am for them. This is what we respond to in the gospel. It is a God who says, I am with you. I am your God. You are my people. I will be for you. This is what we respond to. But a consequence of our grumbling of saying, God, I don't really need you to be with me. I can do better with something else. As verse 15 shows, is that it's not just us that suffer. It's those that are not Christians that suffer as well. The world suffers. It has, as verse 15 says, no light if we are not present. We are the light of the world. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, you are the salt of the earth if you are a Christian. You are salt and light to the earth. Without these things... The world does not have a way to know God. If God does not reveal himself, this is our belief as Christians. It's not that you can just discover God. You can trip and fall and find God under a rock. You can magically go out past Saturn and find him hiding in a black hole. No, the belief of Christianity is that if God does not reveal himself, you will never know him. In the same way that if Kenny does not tell me who he is, if I don't get to know what Kenny is like, I will never know Kenny. In this world, in this place, in this city, in this neighborhood, we are those that reveal God to the world. We do that in and through his word, as verse 16 says. We are those that hold out the light, that hold out the hope of something more that is not just settling, that is above settling, that is something worth hoping in. I hope you know that. That you are a distinct and valuable people. Whatever your job is this morning, whatever your aspirations may be, you cannot be more valuable to the world than you can be as a Christian sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't be more valuable than that. Do you know how valuable you are? Stop pretending that you're not. Stop listening to the voices that say, I will only be this good when I have this thing. That I will only be worth something when I'm with someone. You are so incredibly valuable and it has nothing to do with your job performance. It is being a Christian. It is being someone who shows others the light. The Christian community is, by this picture, the electric grid of the world. When we go dark, the world goes dark. Will you be light? Or will you be darkness? When we look for other options outside of God, we go dark. When we say, maybe I can do better with, we go dark. When we grumble and dispute with God, we go dark. Your life is not just consequential for yourself. It matters for other people. It does matter. What we do matters. But how do we change, lastly? How are we actually made different? How do we stop grumbling? How do we walk back from the edge of wanting to divorce God and this marriage relationship that we have with him? How do we start loving and stop hating? How do we start being satisfied? How do we start being humble instead of entitled? How do we start being patient instead of impatient? 
How do we start having an honest faith instead of a bitter, bitter doubt? The first is that we need to be captivated again. We need to be recaptivated if you are a Christian and captivated for the first time if you are not by what God has done for you in the gospel. You need to bring the romance back into this relationship, people. You need to go on dates with God. That sounds ridiculous, I know, but think about it in your dating relationships. If you never talked to that other person, if you never said hello, if you never did anything special, if you never spent time, what would that relationship be like? Exactly. Silence. It would be nothing. You would not be growing. You would not be growing in affection. We have to bring ourselves back into a place of loving God. But the picture that Scripture tells us is that we're actually not capable of that. We're not capable of bringing ourselves to God in love. We need Him to bring us. This is the message of Christianity, that you cannot do it, but it can be done and has been done in Jesus Christ. And if you are in Him, you are faithful to God as those who are in Christ. Know who you are as Christians. Be captivated again by who God is and what He has done for you in Christ. Get into Scripture. Remind yourselves of who God is and what He has done. If you don't know where to start, just go to the Gospels. You have a whole catalog of who God is and what He has done and how much He is for you. To what degree? To death. Come what may, God is for you. Be captivated by this. God says, when am I giving up on you? Never. When am I going to get tired of you? Never. When am I just going to be done with you because you've sinned again and again and again? Never. Be captivated by God's love for you. When it's two in the morning and you can't sleep because twins are crying at your face, be captivated by what God has done for you. Because if you are settling for something less than that, it is not enough. You are not going to find anything like this kind of love. You're not going to find anything kind like this kind of contentment anywhere else. There is no other hope for you than to be captivated and recaptivated again and again by the love of God in Jesus Christ for you. And that is what will be in eternity, that we will be increasingly captivated by our spouse who is God, that we will only come to love him more and more and more so that we cannot imagine what life would be like outside of his presence. But not just that, and just briefly touching on verses 19 through 30, I said I can't do this, I can't cover the whole thing, but just think about part of this, that as Paul talks about this community, he is talking about what God has done in the lives of others. Grace Mosaic, be captivated by what God has done in the lives of the people around you. Do we know what God is even doing in our friends' and family's lives? Are we asking? Are we getting to that level in our conversations? Are we making that a priority? Get to that point. Know people's stories. Know what God is doing for them and be captivated by that. Be amazed by what he is doing. Get in there. Find out what is going on and flip what you are doing if you are majoring on people's faults. If you have a greater list of what people are doing wrong than what they are doing right, you are doing it wrong. We need to be more captivated by the good things people have in their life because of God than all the mistakes that they have. Because if it was us, What would you want? Would you want people to be captivated by the good things that God has done in your life or to constantly be bringing out this laundry list of all your mistakes? What is going to make you fall more in love with a community? A place where you are known and championed and celebrated? What's going to make our kids grow up and feel loved and supported is that we find them doing good things and we celebrate that good thing. Christians this morning, find your neighbor, find your spouse, find them doing good things, find God doing good things in their life and celebrate those things. 
Do not grumble against one another and dispute, but be salt and light to the world. We need to cultivate gratitude. This is the other thing. that We need to be captivated again by God, but we also need to cultivate gratitude. We need to major on the positive aspects of our spouses, of our friends, of our kids. We need to know what they do well so well that we forgot what they don't do well. We need to know and cultivate gratitude. Like Tim Lane said in that quote, we need to nurture the positivity. Because if we don't, no matter how much we try to force ourselves, we're just not going to be in that place of loving one another, of working together for the gospel in this place, of sharing what is of the utmost value. And I want to challenge you this morning. Create a list of positives this week for the person that bothers you most in your life. For the person you get along with least, that you like the least, make a list of the good things that God has done in their life, of the things that they do well, of the things that they do right. Because in Christ, that is what God has done for you. He has taken those that are least, that are farthest, that are least deserving, and said, I delight in you. Let us do that for one another. And know that this is actually something we can do. If we go back to verse 13, who is it that works in you? It is God who works in you. I know you don't feel like you can do this. I don't feel like I can do this. That's actually better. God doesn't need your strength. 2 Corinthians 12 says that God works in our weakness. His strength is made perfect in weakness. He doesn't need you to be something to save you from yourself. He can save you. He will save you. This can be done. This will ultimately be done when Christ comes back and we are made new. You're not going to reach perfection here. Let me just set that bar for you. Perfectionists, take yourself off the ledge this morning. You're not going to get there. But we can make progress. We can be better. We can fall more in love with our spouse who is God. And we can do it, as verse 19 through 30 show us, even without the all-stars in our community. Even if we don't have a Paul and a Timothy here. Even if we only have Epaphroditus. We have those that will help us become the people of God that help us become the people that God wants us to be. Where God has you now is on purpose. Where you live this morning is on purpose. The people you know, it's on purpose. God has you where he wants you and he will make you into who he wants you to be no matter where you are. Do not grumble. Do not dispute. But God loves you. He is committed to you. And if you do not know him this morning, if you said, I don't know, Christianity, that's a reach. We get that. There is a lot. We are claiming some crazy things that were crazy back then. People don't get out of the grave. You might have driven past the cemetery this morning. No one gets out. But we believe that someone did because we believe there is something more than our eyes can see. We believe in more than just what we can discover for ourselves. We believe that God is real and he can reveal himself to us. If you're not a Christian this morning, consider being captivated by this kind of love by the kind of love that says you're settling for too little, I have more for you. Let's pray. God, you are so good, and we are so in need of you. God, as Paul said in Romans 7, who will save us from this body of death? Thanks be to God and Jesus Christ that we have a Savior. God, would you help those who do not know you to know that salvation this morning, that they may not grumble and dispute against you and settle for less. Would you help those of us who do know you to know you again, to be recaptivated by your love, to not settle for less, to not say that maybe we can do better with something else, but to give ourselves in faith and faithfulness to you. 
and to celebrate what you have done in Jesus Christ. In your son's beautiful name we pray. Amen.